Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Your Booked. As a thank you for listening throughout the year, we're bringing you a festive mini episode. It's the Christmas chapter from my book, The Sisterhood, A Love Letter to the Women Who Shape Me. Almost every book I love, from Little House in the Big Woods to Bridget Jones' Diary, features a description of how the characters spend Christmas. Sometimes it's cosy, sometimes it's painful, sometimes it's hilarious and sometimes it's simply magical. So when I wrote The Sisterhood, which is partly a memoir about what it was like to grow up in a house with five little sisters, and partly an exploration of how we connect with our biological and logical sisters all over the world, I couldn't resist including a Christmas chapter of my own. Here it is. I really hope you enjoy it. The best way to explain how my family functions is to tell you about Christmas. My dad adores Christmas. My mum regularly makes a joke about dad that perhaps only eight people in the world, us, find funny. It's her riff on St Augustine's, we are an Easter people and Alleluia is our song. She says of my father, he is a Christmas man and Jingle Bells is his song. Dad is indeed a Christmas man. Like Santa, he prepares all year long, gathering gifts, claiming hiding places, making lists and checking them twice, thrice, squinting at bits of paper balanced on piles of packages while standing in line at John Lewis. I still can't decipher my father's handwriting because I taught myself not to look, even though I longed to read my seasonal runes and see what was in store for me. I remember Dad calling my bluff after a trip into town when I was showing too much interest in the mysterious contents of the carrier bags. Well, do you want to know what you're getting for Christmas? Here, I'll show you. I ran from the room. The greatest telling off that I remember getting as a child happened on Christmas Eve Eve when my sisters and I sneaked into Dad's study and started clawing at packages as if we were playing the bonus round on catchphrase, hoping to guess our gifts by tearing off tiny panels of paper, even though I don't think any of us really wanted to know before Christmas morning. 
During the month of December, we devoted our lives to second-guessing Dad's system, but we were all wily coyotes to his roadrunner. We knew the game was unwinnable, and we didn't want victory, for it would have disturbed the order of the universe. Christmas was when I witnessed my parents' love languages in action. In the 90s, an American self-help author named Gary Chapman published a book that suggested there are five main ways of expressing love. Giving someone words of affirmation, quality time, gifts, touch and acts of service. The trouble with the system is that it assumes our instincts will override societal pressures. It doesn't take account of the fact that women especially are expected to constantly perform acts of service, as well as being the ones who are expected to give up their time to look after other people. We can't always choose our love languages freely. We're propelled into acts of service because that is what has been expected of us for thousands of years. It's only relatively recently that we've learned our words of affirmation deserve to be listened to, or that we've been able to earn our own money to buy any gifts we want to give. My mother is one of the most thoughtful, kind and empathetic people I know, but I realise that she feels as though she is expected to express that kindness by being the perfect hostess. When I think of the ways mum says, I love you, I can taste the homemade lasagna she'd cook on my first night home for the Christmas holidays. Tenderness made deep and crisp and even. I think of her she makes my bed up with Irish linen, a luxury she longed for during the early years of marriage and practical polycotton, a necessity brought about by children and their unreliable bladders. I think of the heft and heaviness of the back door, the push followed by the squeeze, as mum clasps her arms around me and asks about my journey and whether I want a cup of tea or a glass of wine. Mum and dad both share an ability to show their love selflessly. Their ways of saying I love you make the recipient the subject, not the object. Dad's presents are carefully chosen reflections of the taste of the person whose name is on the tag, not his. My mum cares about making other people comfortable rather than impressing them. Perhaps most importantly, my parents share a sixth love language, literature. Everyone knows that the Christmas chapter is the best in any book, and when you have a gaggle of daughters, you've already assembled the cast of characters. If you have a bookish sensibility, impressionable children, and a fondness for fairy lights, you can make magic happen with ease. When we were little, the magic was easy to maintain. If someone kicked a can down the street within my earshot, I was convinced I'd heard the sound of jingle bells and that the seasonal Stasi, elves, were checking on our behaviour and reporting back to Santa. But when I was 11, I was convinced, like the March girls, that Christmas couldn't be Christmas, partly because I was greasy, gross and hormonal, but mostly because I'd broken my leg and I was encased in plaster from left foot to thigh. I felt like crap on crutches and I couldn't do anything Christmassy because I was so clumsy and immobile. No singing in the choir. No running to the bottom of the garden with my arms outstretched, convinced I'd seen snowfall. It was usually a carrier bag caught in a tree. No giggly trips to Superdrug on a Saturday, spending my pocket money on presents my school friends that cost pound fifty and claimed to smell of white musk. I was miserable. Dad was more concerned about my lack of Christmas spirit than my leg itself. The Buchanans are proudly sedentary people, and at points I think the rest of the family envied me my enforced spell of stillness. 
His eldest daughter was one sulk away from Humbug territory, so he came up with a plan. On the 20th of December, the Feast of St. School's Out, or Christmas Eve, 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 he presented my sisters and me with the festive programme of events. A timetable of fun that promised tree decorating, the telling of Christmas ghost stories, quizzes, magical mystery tours and an afternoon dedicated to the writing of thank you letters. It's the curse of the middle classes. My parents would rather receive a telephone call informing them that one of us was being incarcerated for murder than one from a relative saying they felt insufficiently thanked for a body shop bath pile set. The programme of events became as traditional as the handwritten letter from Father Christmas left next to a smeary sherry glass and a carrot stub. No matter how deeply we had chosen to impale ourselves on the claws of adolescence, we would line up like the Von Trapps to receive our little booklets. Even now, it makes me feel tender and tearful to think of Dad in his office, photocopying and stapling pages decorated with pictures of snowmen he had hand-drawn in pencil ink. Eventually it was phased out as we grew up and started to spend Christmas with our partner's families. Still, new practices took its place. Come to my parents' house for Christmas and you'll be asked to write and read out a ghost story on Christmas Eve, probably while you're under the influence of half a bottle of Stone's green ginger wine. Sometimes the programme makes special reappearances. For example, all the guests were issued with one on my wedding day. It included a quiz and a fake personal ad from Dad. Wanted cash for a father whose daughters keep getting married. All currencies accepted, no bitcoins. It was Dad's way of teaching us that Christmas is a time for tradition, but that no one can stop you from making up brand new traditions to go with the old ones. As adults, my sisters and I have started our own. Cocktails and claridges and a trip to see the tree. Elaborate Christmas lunches with old friends and housemates in the middle of December putting the Mariah Carey Christmas album on heavy rotation. These rituals are the legacy of the programme of events. Mum and Dad made Christmas feel as fond and familiar as rereading a beloved book. They showed me that it was a time to express love, and that magic happens when you start to realise there are infinite ways of showing it. The Fairy Dress Mum might have been baffled by my girly sensibilities, but she did her very best to understand them. And I never felt more understood than when she made me a magical Christmas gift. I've always been ambitious, and the first thing I ever really wanted to be was a fairy. Princesses did not have magical powers. Our hostesses were made to wear a fairly restrictive uniform, and I'd lost interest in running a sweet shop after a lady at Thornton's explained to me that she was not allowed to eat the stock. To me, fairies were the epitome of all that was pretty and powerful. As far as I could tell, it was a career that was open to all. You didn't need any special qualifications, just the right outfit. I longed for a fairy dress, even though I wasn't absolutely sure what fairies wore. I'd engage mum in long conversations about what such a garment might look like and where I might get it from. Maybe something like this, she'd guess, sketching a flower fairy on top of a shopping list, an elegant ballerina with wings and a tulle tutu. No, nothing like that. It needs to be more sticky-outy, I'd say, struggling to express myself. 
Mum was drawing the sort of fairies that Kieran Knightley might play if Richard Curtis wrote his own version of A Midsummer Night's Dream. What I wanted, although I couldn't articulate it, was a fairy dress fit for Gemma Collins, pink on pink, stiff and trembling with glitter. Something for the doll that got to cover Dame Barbara Cartland's bog roll. A dress that went against every single one of my mother's style sensibilities. Getting hold of a fairy dress became an issue of deep concern. If I couldn't make Mum understand, how was I going to tell Father Christmas? At the time, my sister Beth's favourite piece of fancy dress kit was a towel. She liked to get out of the bath, wrap it around her shoulders and pretend to be a cat. The origins of this game were shrouded in mystery, but at least she could easily shroud herself in a bath sheet. I remember it as a period of loneliness and longing. In my head, I was constantly casting spells. But just how magical could I be? if I couldn't get the dress right. I was obsessed with transforming myself and escaping my dull, dumpy shell. All I wanted was to be someone special and for someone to understand why this mattered so much. Mum did her best to distract me from the subject. Beth had imaginary kittens. A sticky summer evaporated and soon it was almost the end of autumn. I was trying to make myself believe the fog of condensation that I saw when I breathed out was a special spirit I'd created that would help me in my quest to find fairyland. Christmas approached and I was scared and excited. What would happen if I got exactly what I wanted? And what would happen if I didn't? I couldn't bear the idea that there might not be any magic for me in the world. On the day there were plenty of presents but no fairy dress. My nan and grandpa got me the most gloriously girly of gifts, a bright pink parasol and a matching handbag. I paraded around the house with the parasol at full mast, like a southern belle begging for a spell of bad luck, dragging poor Beth behind me until mum suggested that I open some other presents and stop waving the umbrella around for the sake of the ocular health of our guests. It had been such an exciting, distracting day that I'd forgotten about the missing item on my list. Maybe I just wasn't magical enough yet and Father Christmas would catch me next year. But after lunch, just as the sky darkened and Beth was starting to bunch her fists and rub her eyes, Mum sat down and told us that Father Christmas had left another present for us, but it was too big for our stockings. With Dad, she fetched two huge boxes wrapped in shiny gold paper, one for me and one for Beth. Opening the lid, I noticed the gleam of pink ribbon and the curve of something white and tissue-like edged in glitter. Carefully, I lifted the pink from the box. It was perfect. Everything I had dreamed of and hadn't been able to describe. The straps of the dress were made from wide, blossom pink ribbon, adorned with two ruffs of candy pink netting. The rose bodice was smocked and adorned with bows, where it met more netting, which had been gathered into the stickiest, outiest skirt of my dreams. Beth's dress was yellow and we both had wings and a wand. I was magical, and my sister was too. At the time, I didn't know that Mum had been up every night for months, sewing and sweating, her mouth full of pins and ribbon. I truly believed our perfect dresses had fallen out of the sky. However, now I know the truth. Mum has always loved me and my sisters deeply, dearly and voraciously, even though she hasn't always been able to understand us. Even though she was bewildered by my impulse to twirl myself into a pink blur, she respected it and she made it matter to her because it mattered to me. 
She's always treated my sisters and me as though we are made of magic. You can be granted superpowers just as long as someone else wants to see them in you. Sisterhood is published by Headline and it's now available on Audible as an audiobook. Thank you so much for listening to Your Booked. We've loved exploring the shelves of The Great and Good with you this year and we can't wait to share the exciting episodes we have coming up in 2020. We'll be back on the 6th of January with our US series, starting with the legendary director, author and book addict John Waters. I hope you all have wonderful Christmases and stockings filled with good things to read. I leave you with this from Dr. Seuss. Christmas will always be as long as we stand heart to heart and hand in hand. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 